This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Last week we'd been celebrating the Independence Day of India. and we were talking about the lives the secret hidden lives of indian revolutionaries but on the very same day unfortunately our neighbor afghanistan was taken over by the taliban it has been nearly a week since the taliban took over there's news of a resistance movement brewing in panjshir in the north Kabul the capital has been a pandemonium with thousands of people rushing to the airport and some even hanging on to the wings of departing airplanes for dear life nevertheless there is no major dispute that the country is firmly under the control of the taliban Some experts claim that the Taliban takeover this time has been possible on account of wider popular support for their resistance against American intervention. Yet others, probably a larger number, wonder whether that claim is really true or valid. There is no means readily available with anyone at the moment to carry out an opinion survey of the average afghan population or citizen the taliban has meanwhile proclaimed that the country would be run by the sharia law while scholars continue to debate whether their version of the sharia law is a faithful accurate or a fair representation of islam or a perversion There is little controversy that the Taliban has no room for dissent or for women in public life. Experts have been weighing on whether the American withdrawal was timed right or whether America had lost face or whether its intervention had already caused irreparable permanent damage to Afghanistan's future prospects. Now these are largely irrelevant questions at the moment to the immediate safety and well-being of the people of Afghanistan. Incidentally and tellingly enough they have remained marginal to diplomatic discussions or public conversations about how best to run their country. It may be a useful occasion to recall in this context a little known experiment of the united states military in afghanistan in 2007 the pentagon had decided to send some anthropologists in order to talk to the afghan people and win more popular support for the american army in afghanistan that experiment was part of a concept an anthropological concept called the human terrain system it was really a multidisciplinary concept 
the idea was conceived by a section of the U.S. Army, and it was also put into practice by that section, which is called uh, Training and Doctrine Program, or TRADOC. The project was the application of the broader understanding that professionals from social science disciplines, such as anthropology, sociology, political studies, linguistics, and area studies, can offer military personnel on the ground a sound understanding of the local population. Now, human terrain was the name given to the landscape inhabited by local people who were grounded in their particular culture. Now, Montgomery McFitt, a Yale-educated anthropologist, and Andrea Jackson introduced the concept in 2005 in a paper published in the journal Military Review. They claimed that there were gaps in the military commanders and the military staff's understanding of local population and culture in Iraq and in Afghanistan. They said that employment of anthropologists, among others, would help in filling up that gap. Now, that proposal was in turn taken up by TRADOC, which dispatched five human terrain teams to Afghanistan and Iraq in February 2007. The program had uh, an initial budget of 20 million US dollars. By 2010, it had 31 human terrain teams on the field and a budget of $150 million. It became a permanent U.S. Army program in 2010, though it was eventually dissolved in September 2014. The program did not really attract uh, much public attention in the initial stage. In October 2007, the New York Times ran a series of reports on, on this program. Colonel Martin Schawitzer, who led uh, the 82nd Airborne Unit, which walked with the anthropologists, claimed that conflicts had reduced by as much as 60% since the anthropologists arrived. He said that the focus of the military had reportedly shifted from combat to improving the healthcare and education of the local population. I quote, we are focused on bringing governance to the people, unquote, he claimed. Afghan and American civilian officials, too, welcomed the initiative, but they were cautious about its long-term prospects. On the other hand, professional anthropologists in America did not find the program helpful at all. They had reservations against the program 
from the very beginning. Some even called it mercenary anthropology. Hugh Gustafson, an anthropology professor at George Mason University, and 10 other anthropologists circulated an online pledge calling for anthropologists to boycott the teams, particularly in Iraq. McFate was unfazed. I'm often accused of militarizing anthropology, but I'm really anthropologizing the military, she would say. Yet, there were questions about ethics. American Anthropological Association, which is the apex body of anthropology professionals in that country, required its members to swear by a code of ethics. This code called for ensuring that the anthropologists caused no harm to the people or sites they study. Informed consent of the subjects of study was mandatory, as was an honest representation of their work. Gustafson emphasized that they did not circulate their online pledge in order primarily to oppose the war, but to defend the integrity of anthropology as a discipline. Richard Schweder, a Chicago University anthropologist, was concerned that anthropologists were made to wear uniform and carry guns. Let me quote him. This brought to my increasingly skeptical mind the unfortunate image of an angelic anthropologist perched on the shoulder of a member of an American counterinsurgency unit who is kicking in the door of someone's home in Iraq while exclaiming, Hi, we are from the government. We are here to understand you. Unquote. He believed nonetheless that it would be foolish to issue a blanket ban on collaboration with the military. Let me quote him again. Quote, the real issue for academic anthropologists is not whether the military should know more rather than less about other ways of life. Of course, it should know more. The real issue is how our profession is going to begin to play a far more significant educational role in the formulation of foreign policy in the hope that anthropologists won't have to answer some patriotic call late in a sad day to become an armed angel riding the shoulder of a misguided American warrior. Unquote. American Anthropological Association, the discipline's largest professional group, had been studying the problem since its inception in 2007. Although political scientists, sociologists, area studies specialists, and linguists were also involved in the program, um, the panel appointed by American Anthropological Association focused only on anthropologists. It released a report of uh, 
the study in December 2009. The panel concluded that the Pentagon program called the Human Terrain System has two conflicting goals, counterinsurgency on the one hand and research on the other. Collecting data in the context of war, where coercion and offensive tactics are always potentially present, and I quote, can no longer be considered a legitimate professional exercise of anthropology, unquote, says the report. But both anthropologists and the defense establishment supported the idea that the military should have a deeper understanding of the cultures and societies in which it operates. Now, American anthropologists have later developed a more detailed critique of the policy of the U.S. government. Quite senior anthropologists have written in detail about uh, the various aspects or the various problems of this misadventure. For instance, uh, Professor Lawrence Rosen um, of Princeton University has written a paper on this um, incident and in the larger, in terms of the larger problems or misunderstanding of the American policy establishment of anthropology and of its manner of conducting anthropological fieldwork in regard to military or policy uh, initiatives. The Obama administration, um, the paper was written in 2011, clearly would appear, wrote uh, Rosen, to have accepted several cultural assumptions which were highly questionable. It appeared to assume, for instance, one, that tribes are or were structurally rigid entities or obdurate precursors to desired democratic governance. It also assumed that under the current policy of clear, hold and build, the example set in one village will be readily transferable to other village since they share a common aspirational and organizational structure. And three, that in a supposed age of globalization, the local is either unimportant or will be overwhelmed by the need or desire of local people to be incorporated included in a process of uh, ineluctable uniformity. Now, the first assumption that tribes are structurally rigid entities is grounded on a view of tribal organization that is at least 50 years out of date. The second assumption that, you know, one village uh, success would be replicated in other villages is based on a belief that there is very little variation among indigenous peoples. The third assumption is uh, based on another prior assumption that the local would always be impressed and dazzled 
by the global. But the fact of the matter is, the human quest for variation renders such uniformity completely illusory. The human terrain projects, which involved anthropologists as uh, key figures in, in understanding local leadership and patterns of opposition, are uh, or were favored by Secretary of Defense and uh, the leader of American military in, in Afghanistan as well. Now, even if um, we leave aside the question or whether it was proper or not for anthropologists to be involved in such operations, it is clear nonetheless that the assumptions which uh, the people in higher levels of policy making uh, favored or decided to implement are themselves highly questionable and may prove dangerously unreliable, which indeed, as time showed, they did. So war tests our theories, our creativity, and our courage. The American administration had promised to begin withdrawing troops from Afghanistan by July 2011, but it kept on delaying that process, whether knowingly or hopefully or naively or dangerously, um, it's not very clear. Moreover, it could be said that such decision to delay the withdrawal could be a consequence of flawed understanding of local people and their culture. The problem is, as Rosen saw it, if such assumptions eventually become entrenched in military doctrine, or if the Afghan war was seen as an instance in which the US forces were not defeated, then um, these false understandings would eventually be consolidated or would have been accepted as anthropological contributions or anthropology's contribution to the ideology of American counterinsurgency policy and understanding. Now, this is how professional senior anthropologists had put together a more detailed and theoretical criticism of uh, the particular experiment called the human terrain system. Of course, um, these concerns are no longer relevant to the extent that the program had been closed in 2014 partly as um, an acknowledgement of some of these criticisms. However, in future, anthropology and military could come together again. And when they do, it will be useful for us as observers and for policy planners to keep in mind that they should involve senior anthropologists and initiate a process of greater consultation and more detailed engagement before testing any theory 
on the ground. Now that brings to the end of this episode of History Chatter. Do tell us what you think about this episode and please let us know what topics, themes or concerns you'd like for me to cover in future episodes. Till then, this is your friend Onirban signing off. Do subscribe to History Chatter in Epilogue Media website and wherever you get your podcast from. See you soon.